Hola, and welcome to La Receta, a podcast that highlights the hidden stories of Latinx talent across different industries, used to create awareness and inspire the next generation. I'm your host, Miguel Lopez Ixta. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to La Receta. Today, we have a special guest and close friend, Lauri Batista. She is a talent and inclusion director at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, and she's going to talk to us about her journey as an Afro-Latina in the advertising world. Hey, everybody. Um, today, I'm chatting with Lori Batista, a close friend of mine. Um, we met a couple years ago at Wyden and Kennedy. Awesome person. Super cool. If you want to introduce yourself, um, Lori. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, Miguel, thank you for having me. I am so excited to be <laughs> on La Receta. La Receta. <laughs> Super exciting. I feel like I get to witness uh, your baby in the making and mm-hmm. launching. Um, but yeah, like you said, my name is Lori Batista, and I'm Talent and Inclusion Director. Uh, now at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, New York no longer uh-huh. Portland. Oh, I'm still crying over that. <laughs> we still got, you know, we got, we still got love for Portland. <laughs> so Lori's actually, she's about to have a beautiful baby coming too. Um, so, you know, it's crazy how everything's happening right now. And we just, well, I just had a baby too, new parents, the COVID stuff happening and you just moved. So I'm excited to, to hear about your journey and, um, you know, just talk about everything that was going on. So, yeah, we can get started in part one. If you just want to talk about your roots, um, where you come from, your family. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it's funny because my roots is something that is very unglamorous, but uh, something that I am incredibly, incredibly proud of. Uh, because I feel like, like many, my roots made me. Um, and without those humble beginnings, I don't mm. know if I would have ever gotten to do and see some of the things I've gotten to experience in life. Yeah. <laughs> so I am first gen uh, mm-hmm. Latina, Dominicana. Dominicana. Uh, both of my parents, <laughs> Dominicana, see? Um, both my parents came um, over um, from the Dominican Republic. Uh, my dad emigrated uh, when he was 18 mm-hmm. to the Bronx, and my mom had emigrated when she was uh, in college at some point in nursing school. Oh, um, and they met in the Bronx uh, during you know the 70s, where the Latin uh, Caribbean migration to New York City was at an all-time peak mm-hmm. and high. Um, and I was born uh, in the 80s <laughs> um, at that time in the Bronx, New York. And, you know, it's funny because m- my roots are diverse in the sense that while well, I was born in the Bronx and uh, did live there for a formative part of my life, mm-hmm. there were a few key characteristics that helped shape me mm-hmm. and kind of expanded my horizons in different and almost like opposing ways. Interesting. Uh, one of the things that I would say is like a lot of first-gen kids, we serve as my dad didn't speak English. So he lived his entire uh, life in this country only speaking Spanish. <laughs> Sounds um, like my parents too. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we take on, I'm sure you can relate to this, where you take on the duties of having to navigate certain systems, whether it's the educational system, 
and you, you are feeling it out or having to live in two different worlds where one exists in English, one exists in Spanish. And what was so ironic is that um, for a part of my childhood, um, my parents, uh, well, my mom mm -hmm. um, moved to Boston, Massachusetts, and I moved in with her. So that's where I actually spent a lot of my childhood years, too, was out in the outskirts of Boston, which is night and day different from the Bronx. <laughs> did your, so did your parents have any other family here um, before they moved there? So, no, they were both the first to emigrate oh, um, in their family. That's yeah. scary. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So my mom came over with her dormmates, her mm. college friends at the time. <laughs> um, all three of them had come over on a summer to work and make money for college. And uh, sorry, mom, I'm sure she probably doesn't want me to share the story, but, <laughs> the <untold laughs> but they ended up stories. never going back. <laughs> I know. She's like, wait, they asked for your story. They didn't ask for my story. <laughs> but it influenced my story because yeah. it's actually the family that I grew up with. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I knew them as my tias and um, my primos. And it was actually the support network and the friends that she met in college that came over. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. But to your point and to your question, what was interesting is, is that when I was maybe 10 years old, my grandmother mm -hmm. did come from the DR, my mom's mom, to live with us. And that helped shape me because at that point I had actually forgotten all of my Spanish mm. except for two words. The only ones that remained were uh, toalla y papa majada. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask why. Um, but so, you know, for those Latinx folks that <laughs> aren't Spanish speaking, I've been there and empathize with what that feels like. But when my grandmother did move back in with me, I think that was an opportunity for us to, for me to learn Spanish again. Yeah. Um, because she brought home those roots. Those roots. Yep. Those that's great. Roots. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's a little bit about my background and upbringing. Um, very much navigating uh, a very typical Dominican world, but then also a very Americanized world. Yeah. So how was it like going through school? Was it um, full English like middle school, high school, or? Definitely full English, mm -hmm. um, for sure. I would say there was, the town I grew up in had diversity in it, um, mm -hmm. but it was not necessarily any one dominant group. Uh, okay. So there was Latino representation, Black representation, Asian representation, very kind of international upbringing. Mm -hmm. Um, which was interesting, but I don't know that I had a ton of people in my like educational experience that yeah. looked like me, mm. you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely yeah. not a lot of Afro-Latina presence. Um, that was sort of a, a nuanced thing that I didn't fully know how to reconcile. Uh, you know, I think we, first gen kids in general mm -hmm. can probably relate to this, but there's a whole navigation of the educational system that you as a child have to sort of navigate alone. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because oftentimes there's either a language barrier with your parents or just a lack of knowing in how do they help advocate for their kids mm. or how do they help their kids navigate it. And so yeah. there was always that sort of duality of being student and advocate. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that you don't even know you're playing at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but in retrospect, once you have the 
vernacular for it, you understand like, oh, snap. Yeah. <laughs> I was a kid sliding my own permission slips. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. True. <laughs> but I also think it, it's very, it's very endemic of just first gen kids. Yeah. Experience um, in how do you navigate that stuff and how do you explain? You know, you. I remember it's trying to explain to my parents the notion of I wanted to go on a Washington D.C. school trip, and they're like, "Overnight? You don't do overnights in a Latin household." Yeah, <laughs> Being a girl. That's a no. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy we brought that up. I I remember like a bunch of times, or even like on field trips and stuff like that, yeah. like. I remember I had to like sign some of those or like even or just tell my parents like, oh, yeah, it's this. Like, this is what it's talking about. Like, esto. <laughs> but yeah, that's awesome. So you went through elementary, middle school and um, so you're going through high school. Yeah. Um, how was it like, you know, like going through high school and then like thinking about like what, you know, what was next for you? What was the next step and how you were, you know, like going to navigate that? Yeah, I think. For me, the um, notion of going to college, especially at that time, definitely was part of helping realize a dream that my parents had come to this country for, right? Mm -hmm. Because neither one of them had gotten the opportunity to complete school. My dad didn't go to college and my mom obviously had started on her journey but hadn't completed it. So a lot of, you know, the journey was them setting us up so that we could, you know, I could realize a dream. Right. And so we do hold the responsibility of that, Mm -hmm. um, of going to school and going to college. And what was really interesting is that we know, and I'm sure you can relate to this. We know we want to go, but how do you jump from here to there? How do you sort of make it a reality was very much ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm very grateful for, you know, counselors and people who helped me in high school. But to be honest with you, it was a lot of divine intervention (laughs) on how I even was able to make the leap at the time. And I think being in Boston, I very much knew that that was the thing to do and had desires in my sights set on certain schools. Um, But I very much, even things from like, had struggles filling out the FAFSA and how do you explain to your parents like the importance of filling out the FAFSA Mm -hmm. and, and things of that nature in order to qualify for financial aid, um, in navigating all of those things, that was very difficult for us. I feel like in a way, like the limitations that my parents had helped me mature so much faster. Mm -hmm. Um, for sure. But yeah. So, so college, so like, so you, did you end up like, Yep, I ended up going to BU and full transparency, um, didn't have the traditional college student experience Mm. because I did have to work hard and hustle. So I um, specifically chose going to BU because they had such a robust night program. And so I could take some of my classes at night and hustle and work during the day. If you ain't hustling, they're hustling you. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. This is true. Um, You know, I, and that for me was the formula of how I got through school. I always somehow had to work full time in addition to taking classes. And that was really, really hard to sustain. um, Truth be told, Um, like you said, it definitely made me grow up 
yeah, fast. So much faster. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I also, you know, on the healthy side, I think that hustle and that ability to work hard um, did shape and mm. help unlock a whole world of opportunities that mm. by the time I completed my studies and sort of moved on, I had a whole, an entire resume. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that was the blessing um, in disguise of that time in that period, despite having to work really, really hard in order to pay that tuition or make the ends meet. Yeah. And so when you, so you're finally going through college and you're getting towards the end, did you have like any internships or like um, any, anything like that, that kind of prepared you like post-graduation? Yeah. So to be honest with you, because I had always worked full time, I had Mm. never had the ability to take on an internship. Yeah. Um, so, but what I did have was real life work experience, Mm. um, that had prepared me to get a job. Um, and so for me personally, I had known that I always, I had studied advertising and marketing, Mm. um, because I was always intrigued by the creative industry in Uh general. I always knew I wanted to be something creative, little side note. What I really wanted to go to school for was I wanted to be a radio DJ at the time. (laughs) It's never too late. (laughs) In retrospect, that was not my gift, so I'm glad. (laughs) But imagine breaking that to my parents. (laughs) They were not supportive. They're like, yeah, no daughter of mine is going to be a radio DJ. Um, So I felt like, okay, the next best thing or the closest thing that seems like an equitable major Mm-hmm. is advertising right or yeah. marketing like it's creative ish but it's a little bit more business centric so that's honestly how I fell into my major and I had never figured out how to tie my studies to the jobs that I was doing mm-hmm. but I just continued on that track mm-hmm. of study anyways and truth be told um after I had gotten an opportunity to temp at an ad agency Mm. for two weeks Um, because of what I had studied in college. It kind of made me the top candidate at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how I had fallen into advertising. That that work assignment um, had began, my entire career began off of that two-week assignment at an ad agency. That's crazy. Yeah. And have never looked back since. Cool. So, so you had that. So two weeks, and what happens after that? I two weeks. I work my ass off in those two weeks. <laughs> that was for sure. <laughs> I definitely used every opportunity in that short-term assignment mm. to work hard mm-hmm. and to add value, no matter what. Yeah. I think it, it was a fairly administrative assignment. And so I kept raising my hand being like, what else? What else? Is there anything I can do? What else? And at the time, I didn't know it, but I was assisting the EVP of HR. Oh. And. (laughs) Wow. So in raising my hand, you know, he had gotten to know me a little bit more. And at the time, the agency was going through a hiring freeze. And he, I remember him literally saying to me, you know, I can't hire you because we're on a hiring freeze at the moment, Mm -hmm. but I think you would be great at this company. Do you trust me and are you willing to do 
what you need to do to stay in the door. And I was just like, yeah, Mm -hmm. because I had never seen people be creative and have so much like resource and fun at a job. Mm -hmm. So he stuck to his word and I stuck to my word. Um, And I really ended up rotating through a number of different administrative positions in the ad agency until the hiring freeze was lifted. And I got my first account coordinator role um, on an account within the agency. That's awesome. Yeah. So all those, all those late nights and like grinding through the day and you finally get a coordinator role at an agency. And so that was just the beginning. (laughs) That was the beginning. Yeah. So that's what, that was what I was going to say. So what happens, what happens next? How long were you there for? Or like, how'd you think about like, you know, do I really like this job? Is this what I want to do? Um, how are you thinking about all that stuff? Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, I think more so than anything, um, and I'm sure you've experienced when this, when you came in the door of an ad agency, I think in the very beginning, you're just enamored and in awe mm-hmm. that this is a real job. And it's not to say that it's not hard, right? But the level of sort of creativity and culture and fun yep. that is present in creative environments. Am I you're really like, doing this? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because it's so different than anything we've ever been told yep. that, that we can do. Mm-hmm. So I think that that sort of state of enamorment or being enamored definitely characterized my entire first year. Mm. I'm just like, I cannot believe this is a real job. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think you're right. Like, listen, being an account coordinator is a tough job because you're proving yourself, you're learning an industry, and you're junior. And so you're really there as a catch basin to learn and absorb as much as possible and again, add as much value as possible Mm -hmm. and work really, really hard. And I would say what I had learned and what was valuable about it was account management, you know, and being an account manager, you learn the business of advertising from a 360 point Mm -hmm. of view. And so that's really, you know, as hard as it was and as much as you are proving yourself and Um, learning from those who are senior to you on the account business, uh, you really are learning the industry as well as learning the brand that you're a part of in a way that um, just requires a lot of work Mm -hmm. and a lot of dedication. Um, But it does make you better and shape you. And that's really what I think I was so consumed with was how do I learn and how do I add value? Mm. Dang, that's awesome to hear. Um, and how, so how long were you um, were you in this position for? Um, in that exact position, I don't remember, but I know I had kind of made my way up the account management ladder for a period of about five years. So um, commensurating account management roles, you know, you become an AAE, then an AE, and yeah. so on. Um, and what was always interesting to me is that personally, I was okay at being an account manager. Mm-hmm. I knew I had to be, I had to personally work twice as hard to be just as good. Mm. Um, because I like to joke around and say I'm a personality B plus, <laughs> <laughs> a minus. <laughs> I'm a little chill for the account management. <laughs> persona. Yeah. Um, but my creatives always love me. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I always loved the creative work. And so 
I would say for myself, I definitely knew that I extracted, I used that period to extract and learn as much around the advertising business as possible and then figure out how to really find my way and kind of take inventory of what my natural strengths are and then use that knowledge I had built in account management, kind of like learning the business of the business and then marry that with my strengths and then figure out where my space was in this industry, putting the two together. And where, so like after doing that, like where, where did you see yourself like, you know, going like, so I had, I had always sort of seen myself. I knew eventually that it would be, in one of two areas, I thought, okay, I'm a really good writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I need to become a copywriter. Mm-hmm. And then I thought about it. And I was like, well, I'm a naturally gifted writer and I'm naturally gifted with people. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those two ways. And by that time, I was working at a consultancy at the time in New York. And um, remember kind of having an inflection point or an existential moment in my career I was talking to my boss. He's a really gifted copywriter. And he's like, you are a good writer, uh, but I'm not going to give you a copywriting job unless you go back to portfolio school. Oh, and shit. at that time, <laughs> which is fair, which yeah, is yeah. honestly good for him. Yep. <laughs> um, it was good on him to do that um, because I think if you just hand something to somebody, they don't always know the value mm-hmm. um, or don't value it the same. So he, um, I remember I had just kind of wrapped up school at the time I was taking, uh, I was at school at FIT in New York and I was like, you know what? I just finished. I'm not about to go back. Mm. Like I'm good. <laughs> not going to do that. <laughs> but he did say to, he was like, you are really good with people. And there was a woman at the time who was the head of talent who had recently been hired at our agency And again, I think back with the theme of um, adding value Uh and what can I do more of um, had just started organically helping her um, because the creative agency was in startup mode and she started, you know, asking me if I had an interest in talent um, and people. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, you know what? Yes, absolutely. Like I know these are one of the two strengths maybe it's exploring people. And yeah. I would say that is when the magic unlocked for me is that given the opportunity to leverage everything I had learned in the industry as an account manager around developing like create creative and working with creative teams and creative people, and then marrying that with what are my intrinsic strengths Yeah, and use that to accelerate and get a foot in the door in recruiting. And that's when I feel like my career went on a warp speed. Dang, that's so awesome. That's so cool. It's crazy how when you look back um, and you think about like there's those specific moments that kind of like pat like they kind of like made you go one direction. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's those specific people that kind of just like pushed you or like help you. Um, mm-hmm. But that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. Um, and so so that's when you started like your recruiting career then. Mm-hmm. At that time, how how were you feeling? Did you ever, like, think of, like, damn, I'm, like, you know, a Latina, you know, a recruiter, a Latina recruiter in an industry that, you know, there aren't that many Latinos? Like, did you ever think of that or that go through your head, I guess? Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, to your point, my first moment of realization with, with 
me being a Latina Mm -hmm. um, and being a Latina and really understanding that there's not a lot of us in the advertising industry team in account management Mm -hmm. because I don't, I cannot remember seeing another Latin face at all within my department, yeah, which was over a hundred people. That is crazy. <laughs> you know, at the time and feeling like from afar, there were starting to have sparkles and twinkles of people in the space, mm-hmm. um, in the advertising industry that were starting to have this conversation. And I'm aging myself a little bit, but, um, one fangirl moment I remember having, um, when I was an account manager, I was pretty young. And this is probably 2008, if not slightly before, Mm -hmm. um, and Googling um, Tiffany R. Warren because she had come from the same Uh, agency I had come from, but was a few years ahead of me. Uh Um, So she had already moved to New York. And I remember looking at her and being like, okay, if this woman sat in this department and she made it, like I can make it too. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and so, and just Googling her and it was, I don't even know if she had fully started ad color at the time. I think uh-huh. it was just kind of starting out. Um, but it was long before the conversation around representation, inclusion and diversity. Mm-hmm. And there weren't a lot of faces to grab onto. Um, and so that was the one that for me, that was like, okay, that woman made it through account management at this agency and she went on to do bigger and better things in New York. Like I can do it too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think when I had entered recruiting, um, I, I really, I think by that point in time, truth be told, I think I had given up looking for me because, or looking for a voice or face that represented what I represent, because I think I had spent so many years in the industry and didn't see it. Yeah. Uh, truth be told so much so to answer your question, Miguel, I don't know that I have seen, I had a moment an existential moment at this past ad color Mm -hmm. 2019 where I had never in my entire career seen an Afro Latino on an advertising stage. Oh, until, (laughs) until ad color. Um, and I saw Jason Rosario on a panel. Awesome guy. (laughs) Amazing guy. Shout out to Jason. Um, (laughs) I owe him a call by the way. I feel really bad. Um, and I literally went up to him. He didn't know me from a hole in the wall, but with a tear in my eye and said, thank you, because here I am almost 14 years into my creative wow. career and I had never seen myself represented on an advertising stage or conversation. <laughs> That's giving me goosebumps, honestly. Wow. Yeah. And so even though I've you know gotten to this point, the power of seeing that representation wasn't lost on me. So mm. I was super grateful. But yeah, it, it hadn't happened until literally this last year. Dang, that's awesome. And so for all this time in your career of like, you know, starting and like getting into accounts and then moving into recruiting, was all this in the East Coast? No. So I have built my career. It's largely, it started in Boston. I went to New York, mm-hmm. spent a good amount of time in New York. The majority, my entire recruitment career has been based in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did do a small stint in San Francisco, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, working for huge, um, at the inception or kind of, uh, early stages of hello elephant or elephant, nice. the digital agency. 
Um, that team and that work over there was super fascinating, helping mm. build some digitally inclined product teams uh, working on Apple. That's awesome. But San Francisco wasn't necessarily my personal <laughs> thing. <laughs> That's when I learned the difference between uh, you know Latino representation in the East Coast being largely Caribbean based um, and missing my people. <laughs> yeah. like there were no Dominicans <laughs> at all. Um, and so did come back to New York and then that it spent a few more years there and then that's when I got the call from Portland to come mm. out to Portland. Um, and I do believe that being, I, I wholeheartedly believe in a why not mentality. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you, if you get the call or you get the opportunity and nothing's stopping you, why not? Dang. So you make <laughs> that jump and come to yeah. Portland. How was that transition? Knowing that you had already been on the West Coast, but went back to New York, and you're like, all right, fuck it, let's let's do it again. But this time we're going to Portland. But Portland is the whitest city in America. Ever. In America, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so first of all, uh, it was not easy, but it was. I will never regret it, not for mm-hmm. a moment. I'm so glad. Uh, I do it over again and again and again, and I'm honestly grateful for the opportunity. The reason there were a few reasons why I decided to do it geographics aside. When I got the call from Wyden and Kennedy in Portland, I remember saying, Well, no to Portland, but like, of course, the Wyden and Kennedy, like, I'll, I'll talk to you guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the reason why I ended up taking it, despite it being the whitest city in America, was a, a couple of things. I think Wyden and I'm sure you can attest to this, mm-hmm. is probably one of the most human, creative organizations that I have ever seen on the planet in my experience. And the opportunity to walk in as my whole self was mm-hmm. palpable and so obvious um, from the moment I walked in the door. I can come in as Lori, um, you know, first-gen Latina, Latina, and not have to check any pieces of that identity at the yeah. door. And that is not many organizations where we can say we can show up as our host, whole selves. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, like, I'm just, I was super lucky that, you know, I was able to, as soon as after like graduating from college, I was able to start at Whiting. But every time, like, I think I'm like, I'm just like, I'm so thankful that, you know, I was there just because every day that I come in, I'm able to be like, my best self, I guess. And I bring like, you know, like myself and my culture and the person I am. And I don't have to worry about changing that person. Um, mm-hmm. Even like the way I dress and stuff like that, like nothing changes. And I really, really enjoy that. Um, I'm always myself without having to change or like, you know, like think about like, you know, what what should I say here? or What can I say here? Like I'm, I'm, I'm like so grateful to be there. But yeah, that's totally. awesome. And to be honest with you, it's part of the creative and cultural conversation that's constantly happening mm-hmm. in the agency. And, you know, I think that was one of the moments where I really saw an opportunity as a recruiter mm-hmm. um, to come in and really make a difference. Yeah. Um, because I asked myself and said, OK, if I don't come now and take this opportunity now, the person who's in the seat isn't guaranteed to be a Latina black or a person of color or difference in any capacity. Um, And so I did feel a compulsion to be 
the person that helped assume some of yeah. the legacy and work that had been done and started by so many amazing people that preceded us um, and to be a part of that. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I, I really like the way you think of it, you know, like not just as like another job or like moving or like just or even like just being whiter, but more of like, you know, you making a difference, you know, and where else where else is it better to make a difference than widen, right? So that's sure. awesome. Cool. Um, and then so you were here in Portland for a couple of years and mm-hmm. back in uh, back in New York now. Got promoted, mm-hmm. talent inclusion <laughs> director. So what, what what exactly does that mean, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, so in New York, we're, we are approaching it um, at Widen New York. We're approaching it a little bit differently. And I have the privilege of working with Neil and Carl um, and the recruitment team that is out based out here at Widen New York. Awesome. And I think... Oftentimes, um, inclusion and equity work is approached as an internal HR discipline, and Mm -hmm. that's not inherently wrong. I think for a lot of organizations, that makes a lot of sense. You know, at Widen New York, there is definitely a deep intrinsic philosophy that the talent um, that comprises our Mm. equity work and representation is really where our secret sauce is. And Mm. so it's really starting early, early, early in the process from our um, pipelines that precede folks coming in the door. Mm -hmm. And then also looking at how we're engaging our internal community as well. And so it's a new role that's being developed to start early on um, in the process where in recruitment we often play. Um, And then also uh, having the continuity to help influence uh, the internal community as well uh, with some of our internal folks that have already been doing an amazing job um, advancing some of their internal communities like the commons and stuff like that. So shout out to Crystal and a few of the other people who have already um, created such amazing programming and an amazing community. And now it's just advancing it and expanding it further. Damn, that's that's super awesome to hear, especially for me. You know, like, so now now you're like in a position where you're actually, you know, like you're able to like make a change and you know like help a lot of people. And it's crazy to think that um, how you mentioned that, you know, like when you saw Jason, it was like 14 years in the industry that you didn't see any representation mm-hmm. of someone that looked like you. And now you're in a position where you're able to like you know enhance and help that you know that that happens. So that's awesome. I'm so happy for you. So, so happy. Thank you. So the last part, um, part four, um, I think it's been kind of crazy these past couple of months, um, with COVID-19 and like all the uncertainty there is around, you know, like jobs. But I think like even just not just myself, but like so much other talent, um, young talent of color, young Latinx talent, um, or even like people that are just graduating or have just recently graduated, a lot of people are scared, you know, like scared of like not finding a job, scared of like keeping their job that they have right now. Um, But I mean, I think like as a recruiter and like, you know, as a director, you know, are there any like tips or like anything you can like tell people that are, you know, going through this right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, I've lived through... The advertising industry in a recession um, when I was junior. Um, And so there are things that are happening now that feel very familiar. And I can really empathize with what it must feel like when you're graduating or when you're junior 
Um, and it feels like the world around you is sort of mm-hmm. imploding and you don't know what that means for you. Truth be told, I, even as a talent person and as a recruiter, I don't have all the answers. Yeah. I think we're also navigating mm-hmm. this. Um, you know, real talk, this entire podcast came out of our text thread where, <laughs> <laughs> where Miguel, I'm not trying to put you on the streets, but you're like, I'm scared. I'm a new dad. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I'm scared too. Like, I'm pregnant. I'm right there behind you. And we don't know what this is going to mean. But um, one of the things that Miguel and I were talking about is like, you know what, though, like our people have always landed on their feet, you know, Um, and I think anybody, any underrepresented group or marginalized group, um, truth be told, has a resilience factor um, that had predisposes us to succeed. So we got this. So we I refuse to believe this is a thing that is going to you know, get us. And so I think there's definitely a few tips that I have um, that I can share from either wisdom and things I've experienced or um, insight from seeing where the industry is going. Yeah, that will help for sure. And I think the first the first thing from a personal standpoint is understanding that while it might look different, mm-hmm. you know, um, your engagement and entry into this industry might look different, it might not be an internship, um, that is happening this summer. It might come in the form of a temp job. It might come in the form of a side hustle or a volunteer engagement. Um, but it's not altogether uh, the end all and be all of this road. Yeah. And so I would say that's the first piece of advice I would give is that, you know, while job opportunities are likely limited, sure, mm-hmm. um, creative opportunities are not. And that is what this industry thrives off of. Um, And if I can impart anything (laughs) to the entire Latinx community, um, especially the young up and coming, is that creative opportunities are yours too. Hmm. Um, You know, that they absolutely, this is a viable path, that this is a career option, that this industry needs you. Um, and it does look scary and we might not know how to navigate it, but the creativity hasn't died with the economy, mm. um, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. And I think, um, there has been like, when I look through my feed on LinkedIn specifically, mm-hmm. there's been like a few resources that, um, that people have been posting and like sharing across, you know, like across the industry, um, for young talent or even just like anyone that that's been directly affected, um, mm-hmm. by the COVID, are, are there any resources, um, that you, you think are, you know, useful or that you would recommend people to look at, um, totally. if they're just looking for a job or have they been affected by, or if they were affected by the COVID-19? Yeah. Well, I think specifically like a couple of things that, um, I've had an eye on is like for those interested, because this podcast is La Receta and, mm-hmm. you know, we are, um, highlighting, the uniqueness of the Latinx experience. Um, So there's two sets of resources I I think I'd love to share. I think the first one comes when it really centers around learning the industry. Mm. Like if you know you want to come into the space, but you don't know which way is up or where to even start. I would say for Latinx uh, youth or entry-level folks, um, we do have resources and a unique superpower that we have – an understanding of the general market because it's Mm -hmm. a society we live in, but also involvement in the Latinx market and so, and the Hispanic market. And so there's, uh, I would say the number one thing is, is that lean into that dual identity by learning about 
Hispanic advertising specifically. Mm-hmm. There are a whole bunch of resources, um, which I can provide you the links to if they're helpful. Hispanicad.com, uh, latinspots.com. Um, the, those highlight a deep amount of Hispanic mm-hmm. and Latin American work. Um, some of it is bilingual, some of it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and really starts to give you an education on the industry in a way that is very salient and natural to us because of the things that we consume yeah. um, in terms of media or creative input. Ad Age and Ad Week are definitely two of the uh, general market mm-hmm. trade pubs that will educate you about the space. But Ad Age does have a Hispanic marketing page as well. And so I would say for any talent that is looking to break into this industry or find their space or be informed, first really learning deeply about the industry and tracking it and starting to understand around the activity and the accounts and the creativity, uh, that's the first place I would say that they should start. Um, also, El Ojo de Iberoamérica um, mm. is great just because that covers um, – creativity in the Latinx market um, globally. So oh, Latin nice. America globally, which is great. That's dope. Uh, so if you can learn from those four things, then you will understand that space and use your superpower to become a subject matter expert. And then in terms of jobs, Miguel, there's been two places that I find really, really interesting. One of them, I think I might have sent you. Mm-hmm. Um, but have you checked out uh, La Nueva Link? It just launched. Yep. Um, it's super dope. There's a Slack community um, that as soon as you register as well that you can um, apply to be a part of. But there is a Slack channel once you do get accepted. I think they're doing that to just curate and ensure people are really, you know, dedicated creatives yeah. in the space. Um, but that community is already popping, which I love. Um, mm. I saw someone shared a copywriter role at Squarespace today. Oh, nice. Um, which is really great. And the caliber of the, of the opportunities that are being yeah. circulated there are really great. And it's Latinx uh, folks helping Latinx folks, which I love that. That's the best. <laughs> um, and just really gathering around um, creativity. So there's mm. folks from all over uh, the creative space there. And I also really love uh, the Creative Collective, which hosts CultureCon. They have a jobs page called Creative AF Careers. And that one's also pretty highly curated. It's a mailing list. So you have to put your information in and they email you the roles. But that's also a really interesting place to um, get informed around creative opportunities or opportunities in the creative industry. And their Instagram has a ton of resources and things that we can tap into. I noticed today on their Instagram, they even had access to things like limited time free Adobe resources mm. for those who want to create yeah. uh, or have various you know needs or, or access to creative tools. Um, so following them on Instagram is definitely highly recommended. But I feel like those two places are a little bit more off the beaten path, but really mm-hmm. offer resources for Latinx and POC talent. And I think are really great places to start. Awesome. Um, cool. Well, honestly, thank you again so, so much um, for your time and wish you nothing but the best in uh, in New York now. And hopefully once all this is done, like um, I've always wanted business in New York, so maybe we can bring the little guy over there. Oh, for sure. <laughs> we'll have to have a play date with both of our little guys. We can bring you around for sure. Hopefully once all of this passes, 
uh, it'll be perfect time to have you guys come through. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Um, yeah, of course. Everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. La Receta is produced by myself, Miguel Lopezista, Sarita Wesley, and Lucy Dwyer from Wyden and Kennedy. Sound editing by Natalie Hazenga for Joint Editorial.